0: Good evening friends, on behalf of all the members of Overman Foundation, which is a research institute based in Calcutta and dedicated to the ideals of Sri the Mother, I welcome you all to the 7th Shubhash Kumar Mukherjee Memorial Oration. Every year, in memory of late Shubhash Kumar Mukherjee, we organize this memorial oration and for the first time, we are organizing it in Pondicherry, and we are very proud and privileged to have Dr. Alok Pandey, member of Sri Aurobindo Ashram and a renowned psychologist, as the speaker. And today's theme is Why do bad things happen to good people?
1: Thank you, Anurag. It's a very loaded question, I must say. Um, and uh, one which is one of the most important ones uh, among the most important ones which people ask uh, the beauty of this question is it digs both into the metaphysical and philosophical side of life as well as into the pragmatic and practical Uh, i was speaking about the loaded part of it well um, let's first clear a few things Uh, good people and bad things so our idea of good is normally somebody who is an honest person who is generally good with everyone. Uh, goodness, as we understand, probably pays all the taxes, uh, <laughs> puts all his bills in time, and uh, is a friendly person who doesn't, you know, cheat anyone. Who lives by his honest earning, etc., etc., etc. The Indian conception of course is slightly different. It's a man of a sattvic nature, a, a person who lives according to the right law. Uh, it's very interesting. The way Sattvic person is defined is that uh, he knows the Shastra, the Desha, the Kala, and uh, you know the right way of doing anything. So it applies to a whole lot of activities. Um, his his is an instinctive need for balance and harmony. So Sattvic person is of that kind. So uh, whatever it be, the goodness as we understand and as we experience is something much more on the surface. There are a lot of uh, facades of goodness, if I may say so. Uh, but human beings are far more complex than what these surfaces indicate. And therefore, um, we have to understand that our hasty conclusions drawn from um, you know surface experiences of people who are good uh, may not always be valid because um, many people who are good outwardly Uh, harbour within a lot of shadows which are hidden as an undercurrent of life which become active from time to time. I take a classic example of Yudhishthir. Sri himself quotes that example. He is a through and through sattvic person without doubt about it. And uh, yet there are moments when Yudhishthir is overtaken by strange um, strange phenomena. I mean he is putting uh, his uh, brothers, his wife, his uh, his little piece of land on the stake is itself a strange thing. He didn't possess any of them to start with. And yet he kept putting it. So his mind even of a sattvic person can be overtaken by completely intrarational forces. And that is a moment when a lot of things can happen. Like Yudhishthira lost a whole kingdom. And his wife had to go through so much of ignominy ignom- because of all this. So we must understand that good persons have their weak moments. And during those weak moments, many things can happen. You know, there are always forces. This world is a complex play of forces. And they are just waiting for a moment to open the door and they enter. And well, what happens later on is another side of the story, which we can speak about. Then equally bad things. So our idea of bad things is uh, things which are unpleasant, painful, uh, where you suffer a loss, etc., which lead to reactions of grief, anxieties fears uh, and such like but again if we look at from another perspective these so-called bad things are a tremendous challenge to our psyche and can really open another door upon us just as a good person can in moments of weakness open a door to forces which can upset the balance of his life equally bad things can sometimes open a door which can Catapult one from a static state or a plateau into a higher dimension. Uh, in one of the letters, Shurabindo writes to Mrilani Devi, and I think that summarizes it beautifully. He says, as you know, in this world, God brings out often good out of evil. So when we look at many events in the life of, let's say, Rama's life, the, uh, the worst event that you can imagine is that on the day of coronation, he is being uh, sent to the forest. And Rama gladly accepts it because he knows this wisdom that works in within nature. And Rama accepts it because thus alone could he fulfill his mission and could be. Today what we know him as Rama, the Porush. You know, he is sown by this quality of him. He is that purush of Rama. The Porush comes out when he goes into Kishkinda and uh, Dandakaranya and subsequently into Lanka. Otherwise, Rama would have been a very good ruler in Ayodhya with no challenges. I mean... Um, Lankapati would have never dared to, uh, you know, come as close as that. So many, th- this world is in a, in a, you know, knit in a very complex way. So good and bad, uh, evil and um, right and wrong, these are conceptions where many things are intricately interwoven. The second aspect is when we use the word, "Why do bad things happen to good people?" There is implicit within it an intuitive sense of cosmic justice which we all carry whether justice is there or not is a different part but we carry that sense that life should be just and life should be fair but frankly I mean if we talk about justice we are already coming a few notches below the state of oneness that Vedanta describes let me put it this way what would be justice towards an evil doer now punish him give him some horrible experiences of life or to change the tendency in him which is prone to error let's say a good man suffers yudhishthir for example uh, what really would be justice those who have really made him succumb to this state or made him you know wander away in the forest they should suffer or all these tendencies within yudhishthir within everyone they could be worked upon by greater consciousness and change. So this is another dimension. So there is a cosmic justice, but it is not human justice. It's not the way we understand. So this cosmic justice, though it's a shade lower than the ultimate truth and the ultimate mystery. So what really happens in real life, when we really look at this sense or instinctive need for order, we see that all over in creation, there is an order But time to time there is something in it like a mix of disorder. Like you know you add a little spice into the food which can spoil the taste. Now this is something very interesting you can see at all levels. Let's see how this works. How this play of forces work. Take the purely physical universe before life has manifested. So billions of stars scattered into space. What are they doing? Collapsing, rebirth, striking against each other's and... Ultimately, at the end of it, there is such a beautiful, amazing cosmic order that is emerging where you have planetary systems, you have the Milky Way. It's like the Sudarshan Chakra of Vishnu. If you look at it, you know the actual image. And if you look at the time-lapse photography of the way Milky Way is moving, it's amazing. It's moving in a circular fashion. It's it's mind-boggling. At the same time, in this order, at the purely material level, you will see that there are Things which we may consider as disorders. Why disorder? Because they break the order. And they serve a purpose. These are hints to understand, you know, what goes on. So one of the um, uh, classic stories where a disorder created something beautiful, we all know is when in far back times, possibly an asteroid hit the earth. And what came out of it is our wonderful moon. So you see, it's like, you know, had that asteroid not hit the earth, they would have been order, balance. But something beautiful like the moon, which has uh, inspired not just scientists, <laughs> but poets, mystics, philosophers, um, artists, uh, and of course, scientists uh, emerged out of it. So life is like that, that there is an order. But out of that order, whenever there is a seed of disorder, you know, put into it, It creates an asymmetry and this asymmetry actually helps in evolution. So what applies at material level we will see everywhere. Now when life comes. So how does justice operate in life? With life comes the sense of suffering. And so the demand of justice. Though animals don't have that sense intuitively. But there is you know let's say a tiger and a deer are at wrestling. Now who is going to win despite a fable of rabbit and (laughs) here yeah. <laughs> and the tortoise well if a tiger and uh, deer is there uh, and they are very close by chances are odds are heavily loaded against the deer and the tiger is going to win isn't it so one would say what? where is morality in it so first we have to understand cosmic justice doesn't operate according to human notion of morality because it operates on a large scale should the speaks of it as a cosmic issue with a cosmic answer so how does it operate now nature it's the same nature which is playing in different forms. The power of nature which operates in the tiger is also the power of nature which is operating in the deer. What it is doing? Strength and deceit. Even tiger can indulge in deceit, you know, quietly it hides behind to the tiger and swiftness and speed to the deer. Now, they are evenly balanced. And when there is a leap, sometimes the deer escapes, sometimes the tiger wins. It's not about immoral justice at all. But what is happening through this process, there is again evolution, new things, new capacities. And sometimes there is a very interesting phrase in the Upanishad where you know people who speak about justice they want something external to happen. But this famous phrase, the eater eating himself, is eaten. So you see, in the in the process of tiger leaping upon the deer and devouring it so easily, so tiger has a very easy life, cushy life, as you know we may say. But the paradox is that while tigers are dwindling, the deer is multiplying. There is a famous poem of Sri Tiger and the Deer. So he says about this, that tiger is dwindling and uh, the deer is multiplying on the plains of the Ganges. <laughs> and uh, it's so true. So it's so strange that nature plays this game to actually um, bring out some kind of an evolutionary energy. I mean, the giraffe has evolved in such a way that uh, a lion or a tiger is helpless before a giraffe ever watch the um, uh, you know and you will see so apparently it started because it couldn't reach out to the uh, tree tops and it next stretched and stretched but it has stretched in such a way that its height itself becomes it's severe animals can't leap over it i mean watch it's so amazing this tall giraffe just gets a kick and the tigers are <laughs> keeping away because they can't <laughs> Klein such a skyscraper. So the point here again, we see that this so-called play of forces through which somebody falls, somebody wins, somebody succeeds, somebody fails, somebody is the winner and somebody is the loser. Yet in the larger picture, we see that all are evolving and often the loser, the failure is the one who has a greater chance of evolving. It's a very strange paradox, which we meet at the level of life. You see, even we as doctors encounter it, we haven't learned the lesson. We bombard patients with uh, antibiotics to kill bacteria. Bacteria take just few months to mutate. Whereas human beings, <laughs> God knows, <laughs> they have to find new antibiotics and superbugs and all this. So basically, what is working through all this, challenges of life, it's not about a bad thing. That's the way mind assesses it. But it's an evolutionary challenge. We can look at it like all crises as an evolutionary challenge. And we can take the challenge and grow or we can break down. These are the two possibilities. Now what happens at the human level? Who is the winner? Who actually experiences outside more success? Generally speaking, and we would agree by and large, uh, if you don't uh, look at the universe with a tainted human moral version, that those who can deceive, who use their intelligence cunningly are the winners. I mean, this is real uh, real speak. I mean, not not always, but generally speaking, you see, uh, people who become huge business magnets do it at, at the expense of, you know, um, creating holes somewhere. It, it You just can't do it. So, but are they really winners? Now, when you look at it from another standpoint, well, intelligence is given to man to evolve beyond man. Now, this intelligence, when you put in this direction, where you would succeed, as the Gita puts it, uh, there are two kinds of uses of the intelligence. One is uh, the buddhi, which is scattered into all directions, satisfying all the desires. So it satisfies the desires. It's given to person. Look at how cosmic justice operates strange ways. You ask for desire and you are driven by blind ambition, be it Alexander, be it someone, and you have a tremendous vital force and a cunning and you win. But what you lose is something else. This intelligence had a capacity to take you to another level altogether. So you lose possibly becoming a sage, a seer. And perhaps that's what the story of Buddha indicates that uh, when he is born, he is born under stars where he is told he will either become a great sage or he will become a conqueror. So Buddha takes one route. He becomes a conqueror of uh, the minds and hearts of people. He could have taken another route and like Alexander become a conqueror because Buddha had a very strong mind and a very strong vital. Can't imagine his, I mean, a person who sitting at one place could stir millions and look at his mind, the way he goes through analyzing layer after layer is something Sri Aurobindo speaks about it. Uh, when he describes Buddha, he says, um, he contrasts with Buddhists where, you know, you have pot bellies and, shaven heads (laughs) and then he contrasts it with buddha he says but buddha is mighty he walks trampling over desires you need tremendous vital energy and mind to be able to do it to do it so easily to fight with mara the greatest of battle and win it so again we see at the human mental level intelligence just as at the animal level it's the life force well you can turn it in this direction if you turn it in this direction, well, you will win. It doesn't matter whether you are, a, you are deceiving, whether you are a cunning person. Probably Sri Krishna indicates that I am the intelligence of the cunning. You will win. But there is another dimension at which you are losing. In other words, the game of life is loaded in a very interesting way. So you can choose either the good things of life or you can choose the inner growth. This does not give the full answer because why this choice? Why shouldn't life be beautiful through and through? Why there is evil at all? Why we need evil and these circumstances to grow and progress? But first we must understand its place and significance before we come to this second part of the question. Basically, if we look at it from the purely karmic standpoint and people bring in this karma, it happened because you did bad karma. I must tell you, it is one of the worst things to tell a person when he is going through misery, that it is your bad karma. I mean, I remember somebody was hit by uh, a truck driver and uh, the person telling this lady, uh, well, you know, it is your bad karmas. Uh, so the truck driver is fine. He is a good, good guy. He has only rendered cosmic justice by hitting this poor lady. But we have to look at it from another lens. It's not about karma. It's not about this. Karma is an evolutionary mechanism. That's how the puts it. It's We are all on a learning curve. And there are plenty of things. There are many gaps in our understanding. Many gaps in our awareness. And through all these events we are, we are shown where is the gap. Let's take a simple example of accident. And we can see it from the lowest to the highest level. So do accidents happen to good people? Yes, they do. Does it happen to honest people? Yes, they do. Severe accidents, yes, it can. So why does it happen? Accidents happen not because you are good or bad, but because you are unconscious at a given point of time. Now, if you are unconscious at a given point of time and accidents happen, so what is the lesson in this? Grow more conscious. Become more conscious. Grow more aware at every level, even the most physical. And that's exactly why the mother would have a You know, elaborate physical education department but it doesn't matter you may be this or that but if your body base is weak and you invoke the uh, higher consciousness then you will suffer a (coughs) breakdown there have been instances one of the instances I remember is when uh, I mean you would be of course knowing when someone was throwing the javelin and he invoked the mother mother has said do not pull do not pull he invoked the mother and threw the javelin you know his record is not broken till date I don't remember now how many times ahead it has gone of the standard record. But while his record is unbroken, his brain broke down. He suffered a breakdown and continues to have a breakdown till date. So basically the base is not ready. So it it breaks under the pressure. So these challenges of life, karma is a mechanism of evolution. Where we learn in a game of life, what I mean... Uh, We can look at it like this. The soul starts its journey from ignorance. And Sri says it is a world full of battle and surprises. Why? Because its work is not just to come out of ignorance. But to understand all these countless forces. to To be a master of them. Not just understand them. To understand and come out is one kind of spirituality. That the soul must understand how to navigate through. wriggle through a safe passage and be out of it. This is how the Vedantic teaching is that, you know, karma is about this evolution which is going on. But there is another thing in it. Not just understand, but master it. Of the body, the bodily processes, the bodily functioning. Why should there be disease if one is fully a master of everything within the body? It doesn't matter. And you see, it's very interesting while we keep talking about karma, not in evolutionary way, but very often in a fatalistic way. So, when people were blind, well, they did some bad karma. But look at the scientists, they wanted to master, understand. So, they discovered this blindness is because of this cause and almost you have rooted out one type of blindness from this planet Earth. So, essentially, this purpose, why the soul starts from this ignorance, it is potentially omnipotent, potentially omniscient, but it must grow through these challenges, like a schooling. So, as we go through the schooling process, we grow. How do we grow? Through challenges. So when the teacher makes you write um, the same sentence 100 times while others are playing, one, it's punishment. Another, well, I can make it perfect. Of course, we don't do it consciously. We fret and fume and do it. But the result is the same, that you are moving towards perfection. When the teacher makes you stand out, one part is insult and humiliation. Other is, well, One of the, some of the most creative moments that you can ever experience. I don't know if anybody has stood out in the class, from the classroom. I've had two occasions. One, mass exodus. (laughs) Most of us stood out and we discovered creative ways of entertaining ourselves while the teacher was busy thinking she has punished us. And when she came out, we suddenly wore very serious faces. Children! And I... I can't remember. That was one of the most beautiful moments. I mean, I can't forget one of the most beautiful moments of my life. Second was I couldn't control my laughter. I don't know why. But it was an uncontrollable laughter. And three, four times the teacher scolded me. And finally she asked me to go out. I went out. No choice. But my laughter wouldn't stop. (laughs) <laughs> till the mother superior of a convent school she saw me and said why are you out I said because I was laughing she went inside and scolded the sister and it was my turn to have the last laugh <laughs> so <laughs> I can't forget that moment so you see everything in life it depends on how you use it we are on a learning curve so everything is a learning now you see this accident can go to the highest level look at what Sri Bindu said when he had the Fall and the accident. So-called accident. Normally we'll use the word accident. But he says, I was so busy protecting the mother. I could never imagine that the hostile forces will try to attack me. And where did they attack? Precisely the area which is below the Muladhar in that area. Where that awareness, you know, is. And that one moment. Now... We talk about goodness. Shurabindu is not just good. He is the ultimate. I mean, (laughs) both humanly and spiritually. I mean, what else can there be than divine goodness and the perfect gentleman and every which way? And he goes through a fall. And how does he go through a fall? He says, because he was so busy protecting the mother in that moment. Take the further earlier instances of Rama and Lakshmana. They have to be on the edge of death. Of course, there are many reasons when great ones suffer these things. They take upon themselves, uh, as I said, it's an issue of cosmic dimension and they take upon themselves the onslaught of cosmic forces. I mean, the forces that were attacking Rama and Lakshmana were no, no ordinary uh, wrestlers in an arena, but very, very dark and very uh, hostile. So something similar with Shurbindo and the mother, you know, with serious illnesses. So we have to look at it that this is the... Uh, nature of earthly life um, as it is constituted today so we can't sometimes this justifying it always because of karma because of a grand design sometimes can be counterproductive because you are given this vision observe look this is it there is evil now what do you do so you have earlier there were two choices now you have three one choice was make a pact with it Such are the ways of the world. Let me learn the worldly ways. There is evil. I can't help it. So I too wash my hands in that flowing river of blood. And then keep like Macbeth, keep putting my hand under the water and say, (laughs) I still see blood on my hand. So this is one option. Many people take that option and they justify it. This is the nature of earthly life. I am doing well. I am just being practical. Another option which uh, the mighty in the spirit take, mighty in the spirit because even liberation is not an easy path, that such is the nature of worldly life. It can become a catalyst for turning us towards something greater. Is there something beyond? Is there something greater? Is this all life about? So it can become a, like a, you know, launching pad for entering into deeper and higher states and eventually towards liberation. So these were the two options earlier. Now we have a third option and that option comes from the fact that there is something greater when you come in contact with that and then you see this earthly life you want to know the relation. Why can't this greater consciousness master this? And that's where Sri Yoga steps in. But until that mastery happens at every level there is bound to be such events which may look like bad things happening to good people. But bad things happen to good people so that the good may grow wiser and the weak may grow stronger. After all, these are the challenges. These are the crises. And not just stronger and wiser so that I find the escape route, but so that I return back upon this field where I have been hit hard and master it and conquer it. Let me put some practical examples. There are people who have relationship problems. They go through it. And when they have a relationship issue, they withdraw and they sometimes become cynics So life is bad. And some people become misogynists or, you know, even, (laughs) what is it? (laughs) There is no word equivalent to that, I think. Uh, Misogynists. But they become, there are men who begin to hate women. They begin to believe that, you know, women are bad and things like that. And possibly women also have a similar thing. There may not be a word for it that all men are bad or it can be any combinations Permutation is combination. And they become cynics. They withdraw from relationship. They go into their own shell. But there can be another way of looking at it. Maybe I don't know how to really have a beautiful relationship. Let me learn. And it's actually documented that many times a second relationship turns out to be better. I mean, it's it's a strange thing. But uh, now, where is morality and all it? There is none. None according to the human moral conceptions. But God is not playing the moral guardian; He is not policing, us, policing us with a stick in hand and a carrot in another. He's even either ways. You can take another way that okay, whatever be the ills of my relationship, I'm going to take it, suffer it. But then, don't become a, you know, that uh, masochist. Then you say that okay, I'm going to release from within me a greater energy of love, regardless of. Uh, Whatever the person does, I would continue to love, but love with a much greater tremendous force. Now, when we look at it like this, then we see that this seemingly bad event became a catalyst either to find a new way of escape. Sometimes it has made people, you know, strange events. Uh, I know of a person who lost uh, their all their children, you know, what can be bad than this? I mean, all their children. All grown-ups suddenly in a strange freak, freak tragedy, something totally avoidable, unbelievable, but they came unconsolably unhappy, crying and uh, and uh, irony of it was that their son had taken uh, you know arranged for their travel to Pondicherry, not knowing that he will no more be there. And so they, when all this happened, then they were all in that. But this thought that, you know, he had booked the tickets, at least let us go now. You know, it'll be like a last wish fulfillment. Now, I can't imagine anything more tragic, at least to my conception or perception of life. a Child's loss is one of the worst that one can ever imagine. And yet um, they came unconsolably, unhappy, crying. And they met me also and that's when a new journey started and they discovered that this too much much of their pain that this was the point we were so badly involved and we had so many indications that we should pursue a different kind of life a higher life but it somehow we were lost in this maze and though they of course the pain the sting of pain lessened over a period of time but somewhere such a pain does remain But they have completely taken a U-turn in their life and so beautifully they are growing um, in their spiritual pursuit. Now, outwardly, if somebody listens to such a story who doesn't know the facts, would say, oh, if something like this happens, human beings will lose faith. But it's just the opposite. They grew in faith. And I have seen not one, quite a few instances. This is the extreme one I am expressing, but very similar. Because there is something in us which is called as the soul. Which feeds upon all these experiences. There is a very nice uh, line in Savitri uh, regarding the psychic being. It drinks experience like a strengthening wine. So that's how one has to look at it. And finally one has to look at it. There is, of course yoga of transformation is a complete mastery over all these forces. That in spite of all these anomalies that we see all the good and bad and whatever way we may classify right and wrong, morally and ethically, etc., etc., with our idea of justice, there is through all this a supporting hand, which very often we do not see and even repel. So I give this example of a bird in the bush. So a bird in the bush uh, wants to come out. But if it comes out, it has to pass through the thorny passage. And it will... um, Probably ruffle a few feathers. So there is a savior hand which reaches out. Now it's dilemma. Dilemma is should it trust the savior hand? It's its only chance. Because otherwise it's going to just die. Inside that pony bus. Or try to struggle by itself. In which case. Again near. Mission impossible. Now savior hand is the only way. It may end up crushing it. Eating it. It may end up saving it. So she has to take a leap of faith. Even in that it will go through some thorns which will hurt the feathers and yet it comes out. So the whole idea is this pain, struggle, suffering that we go through in life, evil. Shabinda puts it, it's a passage. One thing we must remember, it's not the first word of creation nor the last word. All disorder is an invitation to a higher order. This is the second take home point. Karma is not a mechanism of reward and punishment. Possibly there is nothing like reward and punishment. We have humanized our conception of the divine. And if there is a reward or punishment worthy of the divine consciousness, it won't be punishing the way we punish. It would be to take away the sting of evil from a man's heart. That should be really worthy of a divine being because he can do that. Who else can do it? Rather than giving beatings to beat the soul into obedience and teach it something which it refuses to learn. Uh, So this is how we have to start looking at life. Means when bad things happen, we must first try to look at the wisdom behind. Not just, oh, it is trying to teach me something. This teach me something is a very tricky thing. You know, nowadays this is the modern version. You know, this teach me something. Recently there was a very interesting thing that a yogi was meditating in the forest and uh, one day and then time every day he would go to collect some material to eat from nearby village and then come back. So one day he sees that there is a fox right across uh, the tree where he sits and meditates and it doesn't have two legs but the fox is well fed. She wonders what is the mystery. So he waits one day at night to see what is the mystery and says every night a lion or tiger or some beast comes and puts something to eat and the fox eats. So he draws a lesson. What is the lesson? He says, why am I worrying when there is even a fox is being fed? Why should I worry? Why won't I be taken care of? This is the lesson for me. So he says from tomorrow I am not going to collect anything. God will provide. So he sits, does nothing, meditates, slowly, 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 nothing comes, He becomes <laughs> tired. He's on deathbed. <laughs> then probably God has some mercy and another yogi is going by the road and says, what happened to you, man? So he says, this is what, see, this is the lesson I got. Isn't there a lesson in this story? He says, yes, there is a lesson in this story. But what is the lesson you got? He said, well, a fox can be fed. Why not me? He says, well, why do you want to be like that crippled fox? Why don't you get the lesson of being like a lion and feeding someone? So, you know, this is the other side. So, it's true that there is a lesson, but that lesson is not according to our human uh, consciousness. It's a cosmic wisdom. It's a divine wisdom. And what is the ultimate lesson in all this? To grow, to evolve. I am not saying that if somebody really abandons to the divine, he will not be taken care of. Provided his pursuit is fine. Provided he is not imitating the crippled fox and wanting just to be a lazy person. The Gita speaks of yoga, Shem dhamayam But not in this sense that you be lazy and sit. You just say Hari five times and I will take care of you. He says you do the yoga, I will take care of you. Like Duman Bhai said, Mother, I will do your work, you do my work. Now, that is a different state of consciousness. So... Based on a state of consciousness, we meet the events of life. We may label them as good or bad, but always they are serving to help us go beyond the limited state towards a more complete, more whole state of consciousness where there is not just a greater knowledge about the way this complex tangle of world forces acts, but also a complete mastery over all the forces. Because one day, that's what man's destiny is. He is meant to master All these forces and be freed from all that we call today's disease, accidents, evil, wickedness that he encounters in life and of course ultimately death. So let me just close with these lines from Savitri. uh, Some magnificent lines which I term as the ultimate Vedanta which reconciles um, all this um, sense of evil, problems, issues and the deeper wisdom in a marvelous passage, and only Shobindu can do it. Here he is giving the highest truth in such a beautiful poetry. So it starts with, it's from the secret knowledge where secret knowledge is secret knowledge. <laughs> One who has made this world is ever its lord. So even in chaos, chaos is the ferment for a new creation. Darkness is the beginning of a new dawn so one who has made this world is ever his its lord our errors are his steps upon the way another place he says times accidents god's random plan our errors are his steps upon the way he works through the fears vicissitudes of our lives he works through the hard breath of battle and toil he works through our sins our sorrows and our tears. So he is the only person working twenty-four-seven through all. So there is a wisdom that is operating constantly to uplift us and allows all this so that we may grow into the fullness. You see, perfection cannot come if we are if we are not faced with constant demolition of what we thought of was a perfect world. You see, there are children who, even as grown-ups, they only idolize their parents. And sometimes they miss out on the ultimate parents who wait us, to, who await our discovery. So you see, when we are in a comfort zone, we may suffer from a locked-in syndrome. So he says, but he works. He breaks these patterns, pushes us out of comfort zone so that we can seek a greater good. So beyond our good and bad, there is a greater good and there is a greater evil. The deeper evil is when human consciousness turns away from the divine possibility while chasing the artificially scented flowers of worldly success. And there is a greater good when man surrenders, renounces the limited human good and bad, philanthropy and altruism and all that and seeks the ultimate greater good which can transform his life and the life of society. So he says he works through our sins (coughs) our sorrows and our tears so what should we do whatever the appearance we must bear we don't know how the wisdom is operating whatever the appearance we must bear whatever our strong ills and present fate when nothing we can see but drift and bail a mighty guidance leads us still through all after we have served this great divided world God's bliss and oneness are our inborn right. A day is fixed in the calendar of the unknown, an anniversary of our birth sublime. Our souls shall justify its checkered walk through these apparent good and bad. All shall come near that now is not or far. So this is the basic plan. And for those who want a really very detailed answer, Sri Aurobindo gave in this was published as a book now it's no more as a book Uh, i think so the riddle of the world one of the early books that i had purchased now i don't know shabda still has it as in a book form it's basically a letter of shirobindo to dilip Kumar roy and uh, i think Oh, possible Uh, that i'm sure you you would know perfectly
0: so (laughs) yes (laughs) Uh,
1: but this is a beautiful letter i won't read it in full it it runs into many many pages yeah, but it's there in corrected verse of Sri Aurobindo. so in the letters on yoga I think presently it would be thus um, 28 is the first volume of letters on yoga then in that case 29 it would be on volume 29 and it's called the riddle of the world and Sri Aurobindo, look Sri Aurobindo is a spiritual realist so he doesn't He's no no all is good and you know God is looking after this world and you are being punished because you did some karmas and you know... Oh, you sinner, you become baptized yourself and you will be saved. All the, He doesn't say all that. <laughs> he says, it is not to be denied. No spiritual experience will deny that this is an unideal and unsatisfactory. This is the conclusion that we draw when we look all around. The good, the bad, the indifferent all suffer. At one place he says that blows come to all human beings... Not because they are bad, not because you have done something wrong, but because as human beings we are attached to things which are in their nature transient. So this is how he puts it. Strongly marked with the stamp of inadequacy, suffering, evil. In fact, it's a world in the making. It's a man is himself a being in transition. If we understand this one thing, everything is self-explained. It's not a finished product, it's a world in the making. So world in the making means there are still these forces that hold uh, human nature at bay. Indeed, this perception is in a way almost the starting point of the spiritual earth, except for the few to whom the greater experience comes spontaneously. But still the question remains whether this is indeed, as is contented, the essential character of all manifestation Or so long at least as there is a physical world, it must be of this nature. So one doctrine is that this physical world will remain imperfect. There will be what we call as accidents and all this chaos, this evil, this lack of injustice, unfairness. But there is another world out there where all is good, where you are ultimately rewarded. So he is challenging that proposition. Then... He says that all spiritual experience affirms that there is a permanent above the transience of this manifested world we live in and this limited consciousness in whose narrow borders we grope and struggle and that its characters are infinity, self-existence, freedom, absolute light, absolute beatitude. This is a must if we really want to make ourselves all or this world at some point of time foolproof. Free of all evil. We have to first discover it. And then he says, it's only after we have discovered it, can we choose to return on wings of freedom and light. Back to this world. Is there then an unbridgeable gulf between that which is beyond and that which is here? See, that's why the contrast is so sharp. Sometimes people say that, you know, they come, let's say, to Auroville and Ashram. I mean, they are or any of the uh, Shobindo connected places. And they are expecting an ideal place. Ideal first of all according to our conception. And you have to tell them it's an ideal in the making. It's not a finished product. You are going, not going to see all Gnostic beings suddenly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's a world in the making. But at least it's a world in the making very consciously. And that's a big difference. So it is trying to bridge the gulf. And that which is here... Or are they two perpetual opposites? And only by leaving this adventure in time behind, by overleaping the gulf, can men reach the eternal. And then he says that is the one line of experience that human beings have had. But there is another line that it could be something else. And that he describes very beautifully in this line. That, yes, but there is also this other and indubitable experience that the divine is here in everything as well as above and behind everything. That all is in that and is that when we go back from its appearance to its reality. It is a significant and illumining fact that the Noor of Brahman, even moving and acting in this world, even bearing all its shocks, can live in some absolute peace. Light and beatitude of the divine. This itself is not a small gain. It's itself a kind of mastery. That's why when people say about victory of death, so I often say that the victory of death, it's started, its seed was fully sown on 5th December 1950 and not 29th February. That comes later. (laughs) It is this seed that sprung forth. There is then something here other than that mere trenchant opposition. There is a mystery, a problem which one would think must admit of some less desperate solution. This spiritual spiritual possibility points beyond itself and brings a ray of hope into the darkness of our fallen existence. So this is the basic uh, truth behind all this anomalous experience and our intuitive sense of justice and order and harmony and beauty in this world. That's why it hits us hard. Because we something within us, otherwise if you take it strictly material paradigm of life, this question has no validity. The world is what it is. But even in the hardcore scientists, there is an intuitive sense that there should be order, there should be justice, there should be harmony and a good person should not suffer. So this is how we have to see these appearances, the deeper wisdom behind it how we can access it, how we can grow beyond, at least achieve a certain degree of mastery over all that is happening and how we can return back and be the master of all the forces that right now govern us. That is the great destiny of the soul which Shorabindu has come here to reveal. So, thank you. Uh, If there is any quick question, we can take one or two questions. Yes.
0: Anyone would like to ask something? No. Okay, I think this is... <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks to Alokji, we can now uh, look upon life from a dif- from a different perspective. He has not only solved problems, but in fact, he has dissolved them. And we do not know how to thank him sufficiently. All we can do is to express of a profound gratitude to him for enlightening us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anurag, for all the beautiful work you are doing and for all the kind words. And
1: as you know, it's all her grace and her glory and her beauty and light. Thank you. Thank you.